Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT show, The Nation Talks. As always, we have exciting shows and we have exciting guests. And we deal with the subject and matter at hand for a full 60 minutes. This is not a, an out, here's an expert who gets 10 seconds to talk about uh, what the interviewer is particularly interested in, and then they're back out in the street and you've learned absolutely nothing. It's not that sort of show. This is, we like to think we're a little bit educative, a little bit informative, and tonight is going to be the epitome of that, I absolutely guarantee you. It's been a good day for British democracy, uh, as I always say. And we learned today on the news that the Prime Minister flew from London to Cornwall to address the G7 meeting, at which he will explain to the assembled heads of government how to bring about a greener, a greener environment. <laughs> Uh, so we look forward to more on that in due course. Again, thank you for joining us this evening. Tonight we'll be talking to two people. So we've got a two for tonight. We have Zoe Venditosi and Claire Mitchell QC. And we're really excited because we'll be talking about a subject which, frankly, we should all be talking about because it's a gross injustice and it really needs to be tackled. We'll be talking about the witches of Scotland. If you, if you don't know about this, then I strongly advise that you go to the Witches of Scotland website and learn about it for yourself. I think you'll be just as appalled as I was when I first came across this. Uh, so this is the show tonight. Again, the nation talks. So we're interested in your questions and comments. I feel a little bit sort of ill at ease because I feel a bit like a, a, a thorn between two roses. But I, I, I'll ask you first, if I may, <laughs> Zoe. Uh, how are you coping with the pandemic? Because you've got three teenagers, right? I do have three teenagers. Um, fortunately, because I'm a teacher, it has, or maybe unfortunately, it hasn't felt like too much of a, a lockdown for us because we've been at work for most of the of the pandemic, not full time, but um, I have been able to escape my house usually one day a week up until the schools went back again, where it was back to full time again. So I, I read people on Twitter saying, oh, this is my first time out in you know, eight months, nine months, this is the first time I've seen people. And I think, oh, I walked through a corridor with like 987 children today. So it doesn't really feel like I'm part of the rest of the UK in some ways. It's strange, but fine, doing fine. Don't you feel a little bit vulnerable because the latest scientific uh, advice, uh, it, it suggests that uh, children are vulnerable, i.e. as carriers, not, not necessarily as, as sufferers, uh, thank, thank goodness. Uh, doesn't that make you feel a little bit <laughs> vulnerable um, yourself? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, you know, I just, we we have had a couple of kids recently who've had to go home and had to isolate because of it. And really, it doesn't worry me particularly about catching COVID. I think I had it at Christmas. My husband and son both tested positive. So we were in, in, a, in an isolation for that period of time and oh, I was slightly unwell. Um, so I think I might have had it already. But um, I'm not really worried about getting it. I'm more worried about being forced into isolation with my children and also uh, being being stopped from going to my friend's daughter's 18th birthday party on Saturday, which I'm really, really looking forward to. So I do not want that to be stopped. So I'm fingers crossed till after that point. But um, no, I'm not too worried. And the thing is, you you can't worry about it because you, you can't avoid being with the kids. Yeah, so You just have to, we've got our masks on, we try and, try and keep two yeah. meters away from them but I'm also a support for learning teacher so I'm often working with children that are they've got challenges so they tend to come closer often you have to get closer to them too so yeah. got it just got to live it. with it teaching's yeah. a dangerous sport anyway so <laughs> just another thing well that's what my wife used to always tell me uh, and yeah. I never fully accepted it until now perhaps no uh, well that's great how are you coping Claire um, well, I think lockdown has been a bit easier for people who don't have teenage children in the house. I would say that for a start. Um, well, uh, myself and my partner have only got our two wee dogs and they're a lot easier to look after during a pandemic and uh, and keep, um, keep occupied. So, yeah, um, I have worked throughout the pandemic as well, although most of my stuff... Um, work just switched immediately online so I've been appearing in courts live as it were and and, and online from uh, I think maybe about maybe it was about April May perhaps May um even the start of June and we were already online so um it's odd not going to court it's really odd doing um 
at the start, it was really, really odd doing court work online. Um, but like anything else, you get used to it quite quickly and um, it becomes easy to just open up your laptop, do a bit of work. We don't get dressed up in the wigs and gowns and put on our silks and stuff like that. So that's a bit weird um, to, to just appear talking to somebody. But um, yeah, really, um, it's, it's, not, it's not been too bad. I have had, in comparison to many, many other people, a, a much, much easier lockdown than many. So I can't complain at all. That's good. That's good. Now, does the judge turn up bewigged, no. even though you're in civvies, as it were? No. Um, actually, that's a good question. Um, another, I'm, I'm thinking in cases that I've done, no, we're all we're all just in in suits. But um, I was thinking the other courts because there's they're doing a mixture of courts when they do trials, so people are mostly attending cinemas, jury members. And they are watching a live oh, proceedings, which are taking place in the court. And the judge is uh, has got a wig on then, and the prosecution and defence are wearing their wig and gowns. But they are watching it on the big screen. So that's uh, you know something else. That's that's just an an amazing use of technology to try and help, because we just didn't want a, a huge backlog. And it's it's a way of technology helping to try and stop that because it's in no one's interest at all if trials are delayed for any longer than they need to be. So it's it's been a great use of technology. Well, the old cliche applies, doesn't it? Um, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's actually carved into one of the scenes that's carved into the High Court in the High Court in Glasgow when it was uh, updated. We have various sayings and phrases, and I think that might be one of them that's there. Yeah. Let me ask you, Zoe, if I may, tell, tell us about witches of Scotland. A, why, why does it exist and, and why should other people be interested in the subject? Well, it exists because it was something that Claire um, had a great interest in. And it's probably better if Claire explains that, that bit to you, if she's, if she's stable internet-wise. Do you want to explain this sort of the origin story, Claire? Yeah, if, if I'm stable internet-wise, um, it, um, I suppose what, what, first of all, I have to say is that I am far from the first person who has spoken about the issue of Scotland's need to remember the witches. And um, in particular, a very early proponent of it was um, a professor, Julian Goodair, who is a man who's written a lot of great books on um Scottish history of witch hunts, the European perspective. Mm. And um, he, amongst others, um, very early on uh, um, in the 20th century, uh, 21st century, sorry, have said, we must do something. We, we must um, uh, memorialise these women in some way. There should be some way to do this. So I was already aware of the fact that people were talking about these things. But the reason Witches of Scotland per se came into being was um, I'd read a brilliant book by a woman called Sarah Sheridan called Where Are the Women? And it was a reimagining of Scotland where all where many of the street names and many of the statues were based on women and women's stories, etc. And I sort of had this in the background of my mind. Um, and a lot of things just basically came together at the one time. I work as a, in criminal law in the area of miscarriages of justice. So that's my particular interest. I don't do, uh, um, uh, well, I, I do mostly appeal court work nowadays. And um, I have a flat in the old town in Edinburgh and the appeal courts in the old town in Edinburgh. So um, I was walking in Princess Street Garden one day and um, I was thinking about Sarah's book and I was walking uh, around and I was thinking, you know, there are no women here. There, there are no statues of women. Um, uh, there is a statue, uh, a Greyfriars Bobby statue swap with a dog, um, slightly unfortunately named Bum the dog. Um, and Canada has put a, a statue or given us a statue in Scotland. That was in Princess Street Gardens. And... Um, there are statues of men and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we remember our heroes, our war heroes and stuff like that. But there are other people that should be remembered as well. And I got up to the top of Princess Street Gardens and I came across Wojciech the bear. And that was a bear that did great things during the war. And it's a full size statue of a bear. And I was like, there are no statues of women at all. And there is at least one one dog and one bear. 
and, and no woman. So I, I looked across at the Nor Loch, just past the bear, and a lot of people believe that that's where witches were drowned in Scotland. They weren't actually, they were executed by putting them on a, on a fire um, at the Castle Esplanade just above it. And I thought, not only aren't there stories of brilliant women who have done fantastic things and contributed in major ways to society, but there's not even the story of women who have suffered a terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice. That, that you would look around and you would not realise that apart from one small plaque, which is called the Witch's Well um, in Edinburgh, which says um, 300 witches were killed here, denies the sort of, it, it denies effectively their women saying they are witches. And um, some use their power for good and some for bad. I'm paraphrasing very badly. But there isn't even an acknowledgement of any miscarriage of justice. It's a, it's a small plaque which basically says, here's where we killed some witches. Um, so on all those things came together at the same time. My annoyance at the lack of visibility of women in public spaces, my annoyance at the miscarriage of justice, the fact that we weren't remembering these people. And it just all fused together at the one time. And I sort of stomped home and I just wrote what the witches of Scotland wanted. And that's that's how the, this particular campaign came about. Now you had the campaign and at, at some stage you petitioned the Scottish yes. Parliament. Yeah. What was the outcome of that? Well, maybe so we can talk about the petition process. So Claire, and I, Claire and I met not long after she'd stomped home. And uh, we met at a friend's, we, we hadn't known before this, we met at a friend's uh, pre-wedding sort of get-together and bonded over our love of podcasts, particularly true crime podcasts. And I said to Claire that I really wanted to start making my own podcasts, and she she said that too. And then sometime later, she got in touch with me and said, you know, we had that conversation. How would you like to do podcasts about the witches of Scotland? And then outlined to me what her idea was. Now, I am I, I'm English. Sorry to say, um, I moved here when I was five of a, of a Scottish mum. So I grew up in Scotland and was educated in Scotland. You know, I, I went to school in Fife and then I went to university in Glasgow and I was never taught about the witches in Scotland. I had this kind of vague notion that women had been killed as witches um, and that was basically it. No, no clue really beyond that. And it was only when Claire started talking to me about it and we started to look into it and I researched a bit that I realised the scale of it is enormous. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's something that once you start thinking about the, the people, it was women and men, it was about 85% of the people executed were, were women, but there were men too. So the people that were executed, they they were, it was just completely insane. They were just accused really sort of, sometimes really crazy reasons sometimes really mundane reasons but the fact is that in Scotland over over the period of that time several thousand people were killed in state-sanctioned executions for nothing really I mean we don't we don't really believe that they were witches so that's a that's a whole other debate but this is this is what they were convicted of um, and something that that once I started to think about it and once I started to learn about it, I was absolutely appalled that I didn't know about it, that I hadn't told my children about it, that I didn't know from the area in which I live in Fife what a huge amount of people had been executed, you know, just in Fife alone. So as, it, as things went on, Claire and I started the podcast. We launched it on International Women's Day 2020, which was right before lockdown started. And we like proves that we have no witchy powers because we had no understanding that everything was about to get shut down. So we're not witches. Um, so we started that. And one oh, I'm cruelly disappointed. In that. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have no magical powers. But um, but we we started to record the podcast. And what was really actually brilliant for us was that because of the lockdown and because of the rise of people using Zoom and, and other sort of technologies like that, it meant that we could talk to loads of guests and experts that we actually might not have been able to physically travel to see or fit in the time with them. So we started off the podcast, Claire had an idea of maybe six episodes. We recorded the first one in my basement with an iPhone propped up on the washing machine. And that's a terribly, awfully sounding artifact. And then Claire's brother, who's a sound engineer, kind of went, I'm ashamed and I'm now going to take over your sound engineering. So at that point we moved over and poor David, Claire's brother, thought it was going to be six episodes, but we've just recorded our 36th, sorry David, tonight. 
Um, and because we don't we don't make any money from this at all. So David has done it for gratis and um, has been absolutely wonderful. But because it's a real passion project for us, um, we've put in obviously many, many hours, but it's not something that we make any money from at all. It really is just something that we both feel strongly about. So during the course of the podcast, we've built up lots of listeners. I think, Claire, we've had how many how many listens now? Well, I think we're up at um, 37,000, I think. Oh, Which is not bad, you know, for something that really has no, it has no budget. And two of us. Yeah, so two of us just making it up as we go along. But I think the reason that we've got so many listeners is because what you've said already is that it's it's something that once you know about it, you can't help but be moved by it. And the standard of guests that we've had have been absolutely tremendous. Real world experts, very engaging you know, we've had writers, visual artists, musicians, historians, archaeologists, lawyers. different lawyers. We've just had a real range of, of fantastic guests to shed light on different aspects. So as time's gone on, we always had the plan of we've got three strands to the campaign. There, We're looking for a pardon for all those that were accused. We're looking for an apology for all those that were accused. And we're looking for a state, well, I'm, I'm going to say a monument, although we keep going that's grown a little bit. That's grown some arms and legs, but we can maybe talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But those, those are the three things that we've been looking for. And the way that we decided from the beginning with Claire's legal expertise, she knew about the petition process. So we created a petition and then shared that with anybody, basically. And we ended up having um, several thousand people sign that. And that went in just a few weeks before the election. Um, And as soon as it was handed in, Claire received a response from um, the Scottish Parliament. Claire, do you want to want to? Yeah. Said. Um, I I had drafted it very much. I had drafted it. Can you hear me okay? Yep. No, we can't. Yeah. I'm a good, sorry. I had drafted it very much in mind with um, the fact that years before um, there had been pardoning of men for homosexual offences. And um, that was a, a, an act which said that all the people who had been convicted of those offences were given um, a collective pardon. And um, I thought that was really, really important that, that that had happened and that they'd been given that pardon. And I thought, well, if you can have a collective pardon and you can have a posthumous pardon, why shouldn't you have a collective and posthumous pardon for all those that were convicted of witchcraft? Yeah. Which is, we, we say women, percent women, around 85%, around 15% men in Scotland, which is in fact quite a lot higher than the average elsewhere. Elsewhere in Europe as a generality, it was about an 80-20 split. But um, so we put the petition in, it was signed by uh, thousands of people. We're absolutely delighted um, that so many people, not only from Scotland, the vast majority of people that signed the petition were from Scotland, but we had people from all over the world sign the petition. And um, it, it was just quite, uh, it, it was actually quite moving to see people from other countries saying, um, making comments saying, We've, we pardoned the people who were convicted of witchcraft in our country. You know, why haven't you done something or telling us about their memorials? Um, and of course, there are a lot of memorials already in Scotland, but the the idea was that we wanted some kind of national memorial, some kind of one memorial which encompassed all the people convicted of, of witchcraft. And that wouldn't be something that we would, we as individuals would fund or that we would look for charitable funding for that. We felt very strongly it's something that the state should be responsible for, that they should pay for it and look after it, that because it's something that the state did. So that's, so, we feel very strongly about that. Got it. So, so you submitted the petition what is it, in 2021, is that right? We submitted yep. it, uh-huh. and, and then um, they said, you do realise we're about to have an election? And I said, yes. And, and they said, um, well, we'll come back after the break, after the Justice Committee has been reset up, and, um, uh, and so they can consider it. So in the Public Petitions Committee, there are a lot of petitions, and we fall towards the end of the, the group of petitions that are being considered. So we have quite a few petitions ahead of us, and I don't know how if they do it in order or, or how it's done, but that process is starting up again now. So um, uh, I'm delighted to see that we should have some movement with it being considered um, by the committee. Yeah. 
Good. We've had uh, some questions coming in, and we'll probably take those now. We'll take a few of them. First of all, let me begin with a comment. <clears throat> and you mentioned this earlier, I think, Zoe. Uh, Fiona Graham of Orkney has been in touch to say, we have a memorial to victims. Yep. We've uh, talked about that in the podcast. Trials. Yeah, we're aware of that, um, and we've talked about that in the podcast. There are there are various memorials, as Claire said, which maybe came, Claire maybe said that after the comment was made, but there are various memorials across Scotland. But what we are looking for is is a state monument that is is somewhere prominent where visitors to our country, particularly, can see what was in our past. We feel that's really important. Yeah, I, I well, you know, there's something very interesting about this. I mean, the fact that in an age when people are pulling down statues you're one of the few folks who are saying hey we don't have enough statues we, we could use at least one more i think that i think the difference is that the statues that are getting pulled down or the statues that people want to have pulled down or reconsidered are basically the same root of what we are talking about which is that the overrepresentation of um, of white men of power that made money or had money or came from money tends to be the overwhelming statuary that is there. And what we are saying is that we want to see um, a statue to these people that were essentially killed in, a, in an awful way for ridiculous reasons. Yeah. That's what we want to see in the same way that I would like to see, um, you know, a, a rethink about statues that are there for people that made their money from slavery. We need to talk about that. We, I think it's very important in Scotland that if we want to be an, an independent nation that is seen as being a thoughtful and compassionate and intelligent nation, that we think about our past and we think about the repercussions of that on our present and our future. And that, for me, is very much a big part of the Witches of Scotland campaign. Yeah, I think that I, makes so much sense. I would say my absolutely favourite memorial, the individual memorials that we've had, are, is probably the Orkney one. Yeah. Because it's so simple. And it, it says on, I think, maybe perhaps Fiona can correct me if I'm wrong, but it says they were just folk. Um, and I think that that's brilliant. It, that, that's what the stone says. They were just folk. And it, it's so simple, but it says absolutely everything. But yeah. we, we, um, we've actually had on uh, one of the podcasts, um, the Witches of Shetland, where um, a, a podcaster has come on and spoken by the Witches of Shetland. And we would really love to do, now that we've done Shetland, we would also love to do Orkney. So perhaps if Fiona has a particular interest and, and knows a lot about that, we could, uh, she gets in contact with us, we could try and, and do that because we know there's a, a great deal of interest in the witch trials up in Orkney as well. Well, and that also, gives me a chance to, to plug Fiona's uh, publication, which is called the Orkney News. Oh. And if you want to know about the memorial in Kirkwall uh, to, uh, about the witch trials, you can go and you can get the Orkney News online, everyone. Great. Right? So that, that's helping Fiona... Uh, because no doubt she'll get more advertising and stuff like that. You'll be helping Fiona, and you'll all be, also be helping yourself to understand a little bit more about mm -hmm. how Orkney responded to this hugely important issue. Because so there, wasn't, there wasn't a universal way of dealing with the witch problem across Scotland. You know, there, there were differences in different areas. There was different incidences. There were, there were kind of hot spots, if you will, excuse the pun. Yeah. There, there, it was different across Scotland. So I think that that's something that we like as well about what, we are, what we're doing when we talk to different guests is that they tell us the different areas, you know, how it was in, you know, say the Paisley story to what happened in Fife to what happened in Shetland, you know, and they are all slightly different with, you know, not naturally, there'd be different kind of cultural things in different areas. So it is, it's fascinating, really, yeah, for such a small country. We've, we've had so a question from Gordon McIntosh, and, and he says, it's a little bit gory, but it's, it's a reasonable question too. Where, where and when was the last witch execution? The, the last one, the last recorded one was Janet Horn. And I can't, where exactly was that, Zoe? Can you remember? We've we've done, we've oh, done a hang on. It's it's Janet Horn. Um it was 17 gosh, it was just before yes. the act was repealed, and the act was repealed in 17 uh 1736. Is that right? Yeah. It was 15, quite close towards the end. Yeah, it was only it was only a short time before the end. So it was Janet um it was Janet Horn, and there is actually quite a lot about her. Online, um, if you yeah. 
if you were to Google Janet Horn, which a lot comes up about her, um, she um, she was originally hailed from Dornoch. And I think it was in fact where where she was killed. Um, I'm I'm just I'm just looking here at our own in, uh, information. It's Dornick in Sutherland, yeah, because that, that's the very it's a really sad story. That I mean, they're all sad stories, but that's a particularly sad one because Janet Horn. That's that's the one. It was Janet Horn and her daughter, and Janet Horn was older and was showing signs of probably dementia, something something along those lines. Her daughter had what we would call now a limb difference. And there was there was really horrible sort of talk that she'd been shod by the devil. Is that right, Claire? That's that's the phrase that was used. And the idea was that Janet Horn rode around on the back of her daughter to do the devil's bidding. It's just a really hideous story, which I won't go into just now because it's quite a, a long story, but it's definitely worth having a look at. So it, that's a, a particularly moving one. And there's there's actually responses to that happening just now. There's one of the guests that we had on is making a film that is. Um, inspired by the Janet Horn story. It's not a, a completely true sort of adaptation of it, but it's something that that is just, it's mind boggling. And in a modern society, we would look upon those people as being vulnerable people in our society. But yeah. unfortunately during the witch trials, it was often the vulnerable that were that were um, attacked basically. So, so in, in answer to, uh, uh, to the question uh, uh, from, uh, from Gordon McIntosh, we know that uh, it happened in, we know who it was, Janet, and we know it took place in Sutherland, I think you said. And yeah. when was the act repealed? That would give the us act a clue. Was repealed in, in 1736, and we believe oh, seven, Sorry, it was 1727 that she died. Well, yeah. died is awfully passive. When That was when she was executed, executed 1727. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, a, a heinous period in, in history which lasted, by the looks of it, almost 100 years, a century. Is that right? No, more than that. It was, over, that. It was over, how long was it cleared? The Act, the act was passed in 1530, uh, 1536. Sorry. So a little over, yeah, no, a little over. Sorry, 1563 right. uh, and 1736. I'm transposing my threes and my sixes. So, yes, yeah, so, so the Act, um, the Act which was, which was put in place, um, prob possibly, possibly written by John Knox or, or others around about the time, um, was uh, was put in place. The, the the satanic panic didn't happen immediately. There were basically four hot spots of times when it happened um, throughout, but it was almost a two hundred year period um, mm -hmm. where there were at least four, perhaps arguably five, periods of panic where it would have been very dangerous to have been called a witch. Or even to be a woman. Or even yeah, to be a that, woman. Yeah, that's that's kind of the key thing. And and um, you know, the idea we've we've got a very different modern idea about what a witch is. You know, the idea of a witch has been kind of reclaimed um laterally. You know, there's there's movements like witches of TikTok, you know, you can you could see if you look back that during Trump's election that witches kind of mobilized to to put hexes on and that sort of thing. But we we're we're not witches um and the modern interpretation of which is quite different in many ways to the the witches of this period so in this period there there's quite a lot of myth surrounding the story of the witch trials and and who so, was being a witch. just to help us mm -hmm. there must, because this is this was an activity proscribed by law uh -huh. there must have been a legal definition of a witch surely clear uh, there wasn't a legal definition of a witch, strangely. There was a legal definition of acts of witchcraft. So it was acts of witchcraft that were illegal. Um, also, um, necromancy, which is calling upon the dead to do your bidding. Um, and I think sorcery was the, the, third, the third phraseology. So um, interestingly enough, there were people called charmers at the time. Who would people would pay them to do to do charms or you know a charm for luck a charm for you know your your um, your cattle being well that that sort of thing, and the difference between witchcraft and charmers was that the the um, the potency of the crime came from the involvement with the devil, 
So if you were calling upon the devil to assist you, that formed part of what witchcraft was. But if if other if, if it wasn't, you weren't calling upon the devil, that was a separate thing and not criminal. So it's quite strange in some ways um, how the line was divided between charming and uh, and witchcraft. But uh, in an any event, an important distinction. Because one person would perhaps walk free at some stage or be fined for charming, uh, but the poor woman accused of witchcraft could be strangled or burned or, you know. Yes. The, the women, offense, yeah, the women and men that were that were accused of witchcraft, they it, it wasn't it wasn't actually the sort of this modern idea that we've got that they tended to be kind of rebellious, wise women, midwives, uh, like early early nurses, early doctor type things, redheaded women, left-handed women. Like we've got a modern con conception that that is the the, the majority of yeah. women that were killed was for those types of reasons. There will, of course, be women that had red hair or were left-handed or whatever, or women that had fallen out with people in their local community. And there were, of course, some women and some of the men too, obviously, who were you know healers or or whatever. But really, the the main criteria was just that somebody took against you and that you had a much higher chance if you were a woman because you 85% of them were women. But people often would accuse somebody of witchcraft because they owed them money and they wanted to get out of paying for their money or they were um, somebody was ill and they wanted to blame somebody for it or they were um, Catholic because quite often it was it was Catholic women that were that were executed. Um, because remember, this was mostly the Church of Scotland, or it might not have been known quite as that then. But this is the, it, there were really complex reasons, but mostly it was because they just happened to be the wrong type of person, or they annoyed somebody. Or we have cases that we found where it was a son or a son-in-law who accused the woman because they then got their land, you know, yeah. so there was there was things like that, which was, you know, much more banal reasons for it to be happening. It wasn't necessarily supernatural, but then that was bound up with the belief system at the time where they really did right. believe in the devil. Yeah. So it was a convenient combo. Yeah. I mean, somebody's asking, um, did this extend to children? Well, I mean, it would depend what your definition of what a child is, wouldn't it, Claire, when, when childhood ends? So Claire... Yes, apparently there were children in terms of the modern definition of children, and even then it would be very young people. But as mm. as per the example of um, uh, Janet Horn, although we're not quite sure what age her daughter would have been, it, there, there are examples of children being called witches, but perhaps we're talking early teens. I haven't come across any child under perhaps the age of, I think maybe 12, perhaps. I haven't seen anyone younger than age. But I do know elsewhere in Europe, um, there were children were accused, unfortunately. In Germany, they, they um, we had a guest on who spent his life post-retirement. He was a minister in, in Germany and he spent his life looking for, similar to us, you know, apologies and for memorials to go up around Germany. And, and he's uncovered quite a lot of cases where it was children um, as well as women and men. Now, I gather this whole uh, abhorrent business was, was, you know, carried the full royal endorsement, i.e. that the monarch was 110, if that's 100% behind this uh, law, i.e. it wasn't just a sort of empty, uh, <laughs> what is a fraud, what isn't a fraud. This was, this was the king getting behind it and supporting it uh, and uh, adding his his uh, his impetus behind it. Uh, did that apply to all of the kings over this 200-year period, or were there one or two notable uh, proponents of uh, of uh, of bearing down on witches? Well, I think J James the Sixth um, of Scotland was the one who gave it a legitimacy, a royal legitimacy. He, of course, at the time would have been seen as God's envoy on earth because he was king. So his status in itself imbued him with a, a closeness to the, the, the deity as it was seen. Yeah. And he was absolutely convinced that there were witches amongst us. 
and a number of things that happened in his life he attributed to witchcraft. For example, not being able to go across and meet his new bride, Anne, in Denmark, and then not being able to bring her back across because of the weather, spawned the North Berwick witch trials, where a number of women were accused of um, witching the weather um, and treason. They were charged with treason and bewitching the weather as witches, and a, a number of women lost their life as a result of those accusations. In our most recent podcast, um, we spoke to a, a, a associate professor in Denmark who spoke about it from the history of the Danish people and James VI coming over and the interaction with witchcraft with them because when he was over there, uh, when there was all this talk of witchcraft, they also had a one of time. But yeah, James the James the sixth became so obsessed with the idea of the devil being amongst us and having to root it out of our good society that he literally wrote the book called Demonology. And that book was a source book for people to go and look up and check um, ideas about different types of um, witchcraft, um, uh, different types of spirits and witches. And so he literally wrote the book and he also took part in some of the North Berwick witch trials as well. So he was, he was right in amongst it. And he believed, as did everyone else at the time, absolutely that the devil was real and what he was trying to do, because the experts assure us, because Zoe and I, of course, are, are not experts at all. We make this very clear every single day. Interested, interested amateurs. Uh, yes, uh, uh, very interested, very amateur. Um, but we, we um, you know, it's been, it's been said to us time and time again by experts that they absolutely believed in the centrality of the idea that the devil was amongst us and it had to be rooted out. And he obviously considered that that was his job to inform people and to root the devil out of Scottish society. I mean, that's that's shown in in how they um, how they I don't the the word dealt is wrong, but the, how they dealt with the bodies of the witches once they'd executed them. So another myth that we have in Scotland is that is that witches were um, they were burned at the stake, but they were they were usually hanged or strangled, and then they burned their bodies. And the reason that they burned their bodies, we discovered during this, was because they had this strong idea that if the body was left intact, that once they were dead, that the devil could reanimate their body and then do do his work sort of thing on earth. So that's one of the reasons. That they, that they destroyed the bodies and also I think as a further humiliation for the victims yeah. but they then obviously didn't get a, a Christian burial and the vast 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 majority of these people that were executed will absolutely have been Christians you know they, they weren't you know there might have had sort of um, different cultural ideas about the supernatural and so on but most of them were absolutely churchgoers yeah. so the fact that they then were just just their, their remains were just thrown away basically meant that there was a final idea that, that they wouldn't get into heaven and that they couldn't you know they, they couldn't carry on with their, the rest of their families and so on i mean so it's it's horrific in, in so many levels I, I i tried to picture the scene in north berwick where a group of women chosen by what means who knows what means found themselves uh, in the dock being accused and one of their accusers happens to be the king of the realm. I mean, what yeah. chance did they have? Well, I mean, none. Really. Their, their methods as well for when they were investigating, and I'm using that word again very, very, very loosely, investigating the charges against the people was, you know, they used torture. So, you yeah. know, they, they, we like to think of ourselves as um, in Scotland as, as being more enlightened in those times, and they didn't use as many physical torture devices, although that's kind of coming under question a bit more. It seems to be more than we initially thought. But what was used as a, a common torture technique for confessions, and again, in, in inverted commas, was sleep deprivation. So it was it was something that was done very deliberately that these people were kept awake for hours and days until they gave up information. There's, there's lots of documented cases of that happening. There's documented cases of people being physically tortured until they gave up the names of those around them. Or there was one case that we looked at where they tortured a woman's 
um, children and her husband. And it was only when they moved on to her youngest child, I think, that she just started to give them names. And you can only imagine as a, a modern a modern person that we've watched true crimes documentaries and so on, that you would say anything just to get out of the situation. And then if, you're, if your child was being threatened, you would say anything so that you could save them. So terrible methods. But it's been suggested to us, by the way, that because of the involvement of King James VI, that <clears throat> the state should probably pay for the memorial, but perhaps the royals ought to get involved in making a contribution. That wouldn't be for us to decide, but of course, you know, if uh, if Elizabeth wanted to put her hand in her pocket and, and help pay for that, I'm sure that would be very welcomed. Well, we, we gather, according to recent reports, that the royals want to get more involved in Scotland. This would be an excellent way to underscore that involvement. It yeah, would be outside yeah. the political sphere, but would be a major contribution to addressing a major wrong. Yeah, yeah. Could possibly be, be wrong with that. Good optics for them. They have to watch about their own involvement in, in a pseudo witch hunts themselves, but that's maybe a whole other combo. Oh, I see. Was that done in the Saxe-Coburg days or was that? Let's just pretend that's what I mean and move yeah, on. Right. So. Okay. <laughs> Thomas MacArthur is asking, if I were a druid back in those days, would I be classified as a witch or could be under the law? Well, here's the thing. Um, one of our earliest experts that we talk, talk about on the podcast, and I should say, if you're looking for the podcast, just put in Witches of Scotland podcast into Google and they'll all come up. But one okay. of our earliest experts, Professor Julian Goodyear, spoke about the modern idea of of druids. I say the modern idea meaning 20th century uh, and he compared and contrasted it to the days of the people who were killed. What he said was there wasn't really any concept of people as anything other than Christians at that time. So there might have been people who had druid practices perhaps um, who, uh, um, who did things that modern day druids would understand but there wouldn't be anyone identifying at that time other Christian so even these people who were accused of witchcraft were still completely mainstream Christians they were still living in their community they weren't other they weren't identifying themselves as anything else um, and that that's what our, that's what our expert tells us. So I, I think that the answer to the question um, is no, you wouldn't have been because you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have conceived of yourself as anything other than a Christian at that time, even if you were doing things that were we would describe as modern day druid practices. I mean, it, it must have made lots of women in particular, because, as you say, uh, these trials disproportionately were directed at women. Um, it must have made a lot of women very uh, anxious. Oh, I mean, yeah. if you fell foul of anyone, yeah. I mean, say you're a, an argument over the garden fence or wall, yeah. potentially you could find yourself dragged in front of a whole bunch of, it looks like, from what I can gather of the Kinross trial, uh, Crook of Devon trial in 1662, in front of a bunch of men. Oh, yeah. Who would yeah. then decide uh, on your guilt. And it would appear from the 11 victims of the Crook of Devon trial in 1662, which is just around the corner or where I am just now, uh, that uh, someone called William Halliday and his son presided at five trials and found the accused guilty. Surprise, surprise. Those who survived, those who survived the trial, yeah. gracious, were strangled by the local hangman and burned at a mound in the village. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the current occupant of Tullybore Castle has now planted a maze. And there is now a witch's, a, there's a, a witch's maze at Tullybore Castle. I mean, it's in, it's in such poor taste. And, you know, Claire and I have talked about this, that, you know, that there are representations of witches now that are, A, like, wrong. They, they didn't have, you know, pointy hats and all that sort of stuff. That's, they were later inventions that come from very early days when when women were the ones that made ale, they were they were the brewers, basically. And back in the days where water was unsanitary, often people drank very, very weak beer. And it was often initially women that did that. And they wore hats that could be seen in the market. They had cats to keep their rats away from the grains. And they, of course, stirred things in yeah. all 
in big pots. And it was that wasn't really connoted with witches, particularly until quite a long time later, where there was representations of politicians in the newspapers. And they were they were it was a way of mocking politicians by saying you're old fashioned and representing them dressed as if they were like that. It could have just as easily been, um, a, you know, like a frog or something that was seen as as the witch's animal. Yeah. Where we, we think of them as cats, for example, yeah. you know, it was something that is just sort of been put together over time and kind of made up over time. So it's it, there are lots and lots of myths about it, which is something that we are really keen on kind of talking about and shedding a light on because the facts of it are enough you know there's enough truth there to be working with adding extra bits on but we we had some conversation recently over twitter with um national trust of scotland about some stuff that they'd put together some um some uh basically advertising materials where they'd used a kind of a kind of a shorthand about witches that we thought was a bit distasteful and then also they were um they were marking a a local worthy and he was somebody that was quite involved with the witch trials and again we think you know as i mentioned before about slavery it's an area that we really need to talk about and say right well this person made their money from this or this person did these distasteful things and people yeah. are complex but we need to be truthful about these things so yeah, yeah it's a, it's a it's quite tangled and that's why it's been so interesting having all these experts on who all know about particular areas that can say right well here's the truth of what happened right. we've, we've actually got an episode coming up hopefully quite soon where we've got a leading historian about witchcraft right across the uk we're going to do a kind of a myth busting episode with him where he'll deal with different things that's good let me just reassure everyone that there's no wizardry attached to the disappearance of claire uh, I, I suspect what she's actually doing is to try and improve her internet connection. Uh, Zoom can do lots of things, but it can't really work if there's no internet connection or a poor one. Uh, so no doubt she'll return uh, soon. Uh, so the petition is there. It's perhaps well down the list. Uh, is there anything that people can do to move it up the list? Is that is that a possibility? If they I write think to yeah, they could write to their MPs, um, the MSP, sorry, they could um, tell people about it, listen to the podcast, tell people that don't know about it already about it, because, you know, as you've, you've realised yourself, once you know about this, then it's it's very engaging and you want to know more about the area that you're from. So there's been certainly lots of people that have been in touch with us or have been inspired by listening to the experts who've then researched their own area and have used things like Edinburgh University's interactive map or they've used the source book where it has names of different um, uh, witches in trials in different places. So you can look up things in your area. But we've got other people as well that have been in touch that use their local archives. So there's a fantastic um, independent researcher called Judith Gorman, who's on the show. She's a few episodes back where she's researching in the area where she lives, which is Forfer. And she's discovered lots of really fantastic information about Forfer. And what she said to us was follow the money. So what she's been able to do is find records that weren't immediately obvious because she's looked at things like you know how many candles had to be bought and those that was for keeping the purpose of keeping the accused awake so it was they needed these many candles for these many men in the jail to keep them awake for this amount of time you know how much rope was needed how much gunpowder was needed so that really sheds a light on on how things happened so i think that people it's, it's great if people get in touch with us and then i think the more of a showing of support across Scotland we have, the higher a chance we have of success. But certainly there's an appetite for something to happen. We've been contacted by various MSPs and in fact MPs who are interested in, um, in doing something with this. And the way to get in touch with you and the way to get in touch with Claire is to go to the Witches of Scotland website, yep, which is at www.witchesofscotland.com. Com, I think com, I should know okay. that just off my heart. But also, we're, we use Twitter a lot. So a lot of people get in touch with us through Twitter. Um, Claire and I have both got our own accounts on there, but we've also got a Witches of Scotland account on there. That's that's great. And it's got like several thousand followers on there. So that's great. But also on Facebook, um, we've got a group on there. So it's a page. So people can can have a look at that and, and like it. And then they can see what's coming out or bits of news. And then and also and if people wanted Instagram to support well, you. I don't necessarily mean financially, but if they wanted to support you and, and what you're doing, uh, how could they do that? How could they support I, you? I think in the meantime, until we get to the next stage of having the um, the petition 
heard and, and we move on to that stage of things. I think it's just great if they just connect with us on the different social media areas and really share the podcast because as a teacher, I'm passionate about education. And I think that it's something that's lacking in our Scottish general culture is a truthful understanding of what happened during the witch trials. Yeah. So like Claire said, we're not the experts. We're just the hosts. Yeah. So we get real experts on who really, really know what they're talking about. It's their careers work to tell the, the facts of what's there. So I think the best way to support is to find out about it through the podcasts, maybe do your own research, but tell people. And then when we do get it heard, in parliament then we can say right okay now we need you to to say something yeah. else and you probably need to separate guilt and shame because uh, there's no reason why people today should feel, feel guilty about what happened way back in the middle ages but they can Absolutely. feel that it was a shameful thing mm -hmm. yeah and i think i wouldn't want anybody to feel that they were you know that we in any way were saying well you're personally responsible for it of course not in the same way that people aren't personally responsible for slavery but we need to understand that it is a thing that happened and one of the things we feel strongly about is you know that that old the truism that people that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat the mistakes you know and we do see sometimes where we other people and we blame people in society who are vulnerable for other things that are happening and you can see it happening now so yeah. we don't think it would get to the stage of witch trials but you know i think we always have to be careful that we know what happened in our past yeah. so we can go forward into the future with clear consciences yeah welcome back claire um, hi i'm explaining that there was no wizardry involved in this you you, you were simply looking what? at your internet connection uh, <laughs> no, my, can you give us some idea claire of, of, of how many people might have been affected over the course of these 200 years? Is there any accounting yes. of it? Well, well, there is accounting, and the accounting is very approximate. First of all, I think it's probably important to say that when we think of Scotland, we can't think about it as the modern nation um, of the people that we are just now. Scotland, at the time of these witchcraft trials, probably had around about one million people in it. So it was already a much smaller place. And um, the number of people that were accused very approximately were 4,000 of that 1 million. So a huge amount of people um, being accused of this. And as far as records show, and extrapolating out a wee bit, we think that approximately 2,500 people were killed as witches. Now, the, the figures are likely to be a lot higher than that because... At the start of the witchcraft trials, the first um, satanic panic, um, it was effectively unregulated. So local lairds could hold courts and could call, someone could be called a witch and they could deal with it. Or local, uh, um, uh, local courts could be held and there was no oversight over these, these things at all. And it got, inverted commas, so out of hand that in fact, the Privy Council in Scotland put a stop to it after the first um, period of, of panic and said, you cannot continue on in this week. It is only us that will allow you to hold a trial. And after that, after so after the first tranche of trials, things got a little bit more regulated. And that's when we get a lot of the names. But the so the amounts that were identified are probably very um are probably very uh, um uh, much less than the amount of people who were actually killed as witches because for example an example that we've come across in one of the records are um the information that's just given is sundry witches were killed on a certain day that's all the ledger records yeah. sundry witches or some witches or a number of witches put uh, this into context claire i mean how common was it for a bunch of local worthies uh, to try a, a capital offence? Surely that must have been very unusual. Um, it, 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 I, to be honest, I don't actually know how many offences were capital at that time. Um, well, but it's probably certainly... a lot. But I'm trying to imagine those which would, for which a, a bunch of local folks would qualify to be the, the judge of it. Yes, certainly in the first panic, absolutely, absolutely so. And that's why the Privy Council said, no more, we are going to regulate this. We will grant commissions to people to allow them to try it. And also, again, as Zoe mentioned earlier, they said you'll have no, um, you'll have no torture 
um, of people. We can't be having torture. That's that's not appropriate. We're not keen on that. But what their definition of torture didn't include were various things in the modern day, including one of the very worst sleep deprivation that drives people insane. Um, so, so that was allowed. So it's, it's not surprising we get these long burbling testimonies of people who tell lots of fantastic stories because someone's been talking to them for days about about you must have been involved with the devil who else was there what did you do what was he wearing and your mind would just start to make things up so um so yeah so the answer is that a lot of people were involved julian goodyear also did a sort of a a very uh, rough and ready reckoner as to how many people it would take to be involved from the process from start to end of accusing a witch right through to building gallows, building pyres, obtaining the wood. And he reckoned that that it would take at least an infrastructure of about 100 people to be involved in the process of witch trials. So his idea was that if you didn't know someone that had been accused as a witch, you would know someone who worked in the process, you would know someone who worked in the courts, that it would be very real and very constant to the people living there. And of course, we're talking about Scotland when it was a much, much, much smaller place. Yeah, and also you're talking about a, a universal thing too. I mean, we talked about Germany earlier. I assume that other countries were to some degree infected by this, this noxious idea as well. We, Many we, Europe. Yeah, but but interestingly enough, during the time of which we speak, again, Julian Goodyear tells us that Scotland was involved in five times as many witchcraft accusations than elsewhere in Europe. So we really unfortunately led the charge in respect of trying to weed out people that, that were considered witches yeah. and ungodly. Yeah. So uh, an unenviable reputation in terms of witchcraft. But when yeah. we talked to the um, the Salem Witchcraft Museum, um, uh, uh, the, the person from Salem, um, the curator, Rachel Christ, um, said that she was utterly amazed when, when people came across from other countries like Scotland and said, we want to hear all about your witchcraft trials. She said, do you not know your own history? Yeah. 19 people here were executed as witches, 19. I, I, and almost all of them, but one were pardoned. And yeah. uh, and, and she said, just comparing it to, 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 to yours. I should say that interestingly enough, um, apparently one person was missed out of the pardons that were given to people in um, in Massachusetts, and at the moment they're trying to get through legislature to pardon the last person. So it would be great if we, at the same time, were working to try and get pardoned here in Scotland. I, I agree. I agree. I, well, we're almost out of time. I've been to Salem, and uh, it's it's uh, um, I don't know how to describe it. Atmospheric would be a kind way to put it. And um, it's a lot of gloomy museum, uh, and it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't conform to the contemporary view of a witch at all. It, it rather speaks to a, for, a rather forbidding uh, ethos around the place. Um, but that may just be the way that it's been presented there. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, please take this opportunity, if you have one last message that you want to give to all the people watching and listening tonight, what would it be? I'd say listen to the podcasts and, and get involved and educate yourself because it's something that, that certainly I was horrified but also fascinated by in our history in Scotland. Okay, well, I mean, that makes so much sense to me. I'm terribly, terribly grateful that despite all of the obstacles in our way and <laughs> internet connections, all the rest Sorry. of it, that you, you've stuck with it and, uh, and it's been hugely informative uh, and I very much appreciate the fact that you've given up valuable time to tell us about this. And I do hope people will go to your website. I do hope people will listen to the podcast because I have to tell you folks, it's, it's, it's amazingly enlightening. You won't, be, you won't believe what happened in our history in the Middle Ages. And not just overnight, not just a couple of months or a couple of years, we're talking 200 years, yeah. 200 years. These folks need redress, right? And you can help Claire and you can help Zoe to bring about that redress. They've got clear plans of what they want to see happen. And I'm sure they could use your help uh, to, to bring that about. And a big thank you to everyone who submitted questions tonight. Uh, I really do appreciate that. 
I'll just make a few closing remarks, if I may, and it's to the effect that uh, uh, we've got uh, some other great guests coming up uh, next week, uh, and I would ask you, please, to look out for the details on the whatsonguide.scot, uh, where, you, where you can see all the list of all the indie, indie live uh, programming. And we're back, as I said, next week at the same time. And do, if you're interested in constitutions, look out for my constitution column in the Sunday National. You'll find it in the seven-day supplement. And I might be dealing with uh, 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 some aspects of British democracy along the way. And do support Indie Live if you, if you like the TNT show. Uh, then please support. There's a crowdfunder running right now. Could use your support. It, it's almost reached its target. A little bit of help from you guys would bring it right up to the top there. And I would appreciate that. Uh, and a big thank you to Claire and Zoe again. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Look after yourselves. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.